Now, if you'll all stand up, we'll say our prayer to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, now first, uh, in this talk, we'd like to greet listeners from other worlds who may be listening to these tapes long after you and I have gone, and let them feel that we're here in this beautiful place, the Potomac at its best, and for us all here, the memory that the Catholic Church in the eastern seaboard, at least, of America started here practically in these fields. So we've got a great weight of devotion behind our prayer. I'd like to thank you all very much for the silence. I must admit, I was a bit frightened here when I saw that the ladies had got in, uh, that uh, the silence might have gone out. But no, it's been marvelous. I think St. Bernard would have been embarrassed by the silence. It really was wonderful how you have done that. And I felt such joy this morning, I say mass early, to see people out in the garden in the true tradi American tradition with a cup of coffee already in their hands, but not talking and obviously enjoying the beauty of the grounds. I think in a place like this, the garden really is our nearest approach to God. So it was wonderful. I'd, myself, I never heard a sound upstairs. I'm sure nobody could complain they were disturbed. And that's a triumph, which we ought to try and maintain, because we are here to intercede for the world, that the Holy Spirit will renew the world, and especially to support our Holy Father when he's ill. I feel very conscious at the moment we can do much more by praying here and keeping silence than by talking about his excellence. Now today we're going to first talk about the next step in question of holiness. Last night I only made the point of Cardinal Newman's that holiness is a frame of mind. And any one of you who've done tapestry or all these things where you sew, it's a very good image that each stitch adds a little bit, and that no sudden burst of enthusiasm is going to improve it. In fact, very often with people learning to sew, they ruin it. That it's stitch by stitch that a fr holiness is built up on a frame. And that's why this retreat, we can never do it again. Next year we'll be older, we'll be different. And so, in the first thing, that that's about holiness. Now, secondly, I did say that I wanted to call this a Parliament of Saints. And I'll tell you why, because it's a childish thing. I've always been thrilled with politics since early childhood. I even prayed for Lloyd George. <laughs> and I actually saw General Pershing, so you can see how far back I go. Well, I remember having, or oh, history's always interested me, I divided all my saints up into labor, liberal, and conservative. 
over here, I'd have had to say Democrat and Republican. Well, I remember I had all the conservative saints, mainly bishops. The apostles were all labor, socialist, and we, the liberals, I couldn't only find two, the angel guardian and the good thief. <laughs> I was only about 11. Then I put, used to have an election, and I used to vote in uh, according to what they stood for, as I knew it then. I used to put crosses down and, and form a government. I had a prime minister. I had a chancellor of the exchequer to look after my cash at school. I had a foreign minister to try and get on with the jebbies who were teaching me. <laughs> and I had a minister of health, or you call him secretary, I don't know what. And funny enough, when people say to me today, Father, why do you smoke? I say, because when I had a debate on it, St. Teresa of Lisieux was in charge of health, and she told me to go on. <laughs> so she'll be with me when I die of cancer of the lung. It was very, and then if anything went wrong, if I fed up with the Jesuits or had a row with something or lost my money, then I had an election. I used to stick a stamp at the bottom and put our Lord's initials on it to make it look serious. Indeed, I eventually came to sticking all my saints on a little board with all their pictures with, with Our Lady and Our Lord in the middle. And that, funnily enough, is now in a sub suburb of Chicago. Some friends came to see me on my islands when I lived out there, and at the bottom of my trunk was a piece of cardboard that I didn't bother about, and uh, my friend opened it, and there were all these saints sitting there. And so she asked if she could keep it, so it's framed in Chicago. Hope it'll help the mayor. <laughs> now, I only mention this because when I was 20, I stopped. But even so, I, and how little I knew of the saints. I, none of, I mean, I knew, I knew quite a lot for a boy of 14 and 15, uh, but now I know much more. But there's some wisdom in it uh, that uh, when I was teaching boys, I could tell when they looked horrible, and they were all cheating and misbehaving, and everybody said how bad they all were today. I looked up my own parliament. I found myself discussing how far I could go in the way of helping myself to chocolates in the shop where I used to serve, how far would be a venial sin, and how far would be a mortal sin, with all the saints discussing it. <laughs> and I may tell you that the Democrats got nearest to the wind. <laughs> they were practically like moral theologians. They said, well, yes, you were, they, the Jesuits owe it to you, and all this, and they had all sorts of reasons for taking one extra piece. I discussed how I became a Jesuit. I had a whole debate on it. And uh, you may imagine St. Ignatius was the prime minister at the time. <laughs> I only mention that because when we think about sanctity, I do believe that it is the mass sense of the saints, and they were all so different. And they were, of course, people of different class, and they were people of different education and some were imaginative and some weren't. So I want to stress that at the, in this conference. Now we come then to the, the scene which is, ought to make our prayer. And you're going to find that in the second book of Kings, chapter 5, the story of Naaman. Now some of us will know it well, but most of us will never even have read it once. And it's a marvelous story. The second book of Kings, chapter 5, we meet Naaman. I won't read the actual words that I have here because 
they take slightly longer. I can just bring out the point, but you could spend the whole morning and not get anywhere near the end of Naaman. And what's more, Jesus himself used Naaman in one of his sermons in the synagogue at Nazareth, when our Lord said that when there were lepers all around the country, only one was healed, and that was a pagan, Naaman, to the anger of the people of Nazareth. No, Naaman's very important. Our Lord himself knew the text well. Now, Naaman, we're told, he was the general of the armies of Syria, and he was a wonderful general, and very much loved in the city. Uh, everything went well, but he had suddenly found leprosy. Rather like we all keep on hunting for lumps for cancer of the breast or whatever it is, or s skin cancer. We're always finding lumps. It's such a nightmare. One day he found one. He found a white mark. I think I've got leprosy on my forehead. <laughs> and he suddenly found this thing, and, was, and this general was thrown into panic. He got so bad and so worried that he actually listened to the poor little uh, Jewish slave girl in the kitchen who said, oh, my, we've got a p person in is Israel who can heal leprosy. And Naaman was so thrilled that he put together a tremendous convoy. We are told that he took 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. American Express cards hadn't come in in those days. And he took ten changes of clothing. You'd think he was going off to Florida. <laughs> no, and away they all went, this great convoy, and they got to Judea, and they wrote to the king of Judea saying, Naaman, the great general, is coming, like Ike. Um, will you look after him? He's got leprosy. Well, the king of Judea nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> he didn't know what to do about leprosy. But this little girl had said, oh, there's a man who can heal leprosy in Israel. So when the king tore his garments in horror that the great general was coming, this um, uh, Elisha the prophet uh, sent him a message saying, oh, I can cure that. So the king told Naaman to go and see Elisha. So he drove up with all his ten changes of clothing to the, co to the cottage where the prophet lived. And the odd thing is the prophet didn't come down to meet him. The prophet sent a servant down to say, go and bathe in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And poor Naaman looked at the Jordan from a distance and he nearly had a heart attack. He said, are not the Abana and the Farfa in my own country far better than this little thing? They were, the Jordan was ridiculous. If you lived at St. Louis and had the Mississippi, you'd be furious to be going told to bathe in the River Thames. So that he was so angry that the man, did, the prophet, didn't even come down, and he was so furious to be told to go bathe in this dirty little piddle that he turned all the chariots around and was going back with all his clothes and everything. And then the his servant put the marvelous question to him. The servant said, "If the prophet had bid you do some big thing, you would certainly have done it." How much more what he now has asked of you? It's the only t case in really in the Bible where an angry man was humble enough to change. When the prophet said, well, when the servant said, surely if he'd told you to stand on your head or take these pills twice a day for a year, 
or go to Lourdes, you'd have done it. But when he says bathe in that dirty little river, you're furious. So the, uh, the great general tore off all his stars and stripes and rushed down to the Jordan, which is ridiculous. It was bad enough in those days, and now when the Assyrians themselves and the Jews and everybody stealing water higher up, the Jordan, you could jump over it. He rushed in, bathed seven times, and the white spot disappeared. And he came back calling on the name of God. Now, I want to suggest to you, because God obviously loved what Naaman did. Naaman suddenly changed from wanting a great and impressive cure to doing the silliest thing that the prophet didn't even bother to come down and tell him, sent a message to him. You could apply all that to your life, and then you suddenly realize to be a saint is if God asks me to do a big thing, I will. If he asks me to do a little thing, I will. You see, we think of sanctity as something heroic. We read saints' lives, chapter 1, vision under the mulberry tree, chapter 2, walked on a sunbeam and all this, and we ought to Simon Stylite, standing on a column. I do that. We'll be do doing it in some of the retreat houses before we've finished, where we'll all be standing on columns, feeling holy. No, we're, um, we feel that you've got to have ecstasies to be holy, and yet we, the saints themselves weren't like that. Saint Teresa of Avila, the great one, she spent 29 years of prayer bored stiff. So any of you who are under 30 have still got a few years to go before uh, you're going to get to qualify for any kind of mystic grace. St. Peter Claver lived 45 years in the same dirty little room in Cartagena and died there. And when he was dying, the very slaves that he had rescued stole the food off his tray. The poor old saint was done in by the chaps he tried to help. Now, we, if you live 45 years in one dirty room, you'd say, I'm in a rut. It's most interesting to see how we, uh, we think of the martyrs going so bravely to death. Our Lord said, when you're hauled before the magistrates, I'll tell you what to say. So it's no good to start writing your death speech yet, because the Holy Ghost may give you another thought. So this idea that sanctity is very great, I've got to do great things, is a disaster. We don't have to. Now, the model for all this, he was my prime minister once, Republican, I may tell you, St. Ignatius. I talk about him for three reasons. First, because he is the founder of my order. Secondly, because he was my prime minister. And thirdly, because you, the whole world would agree, even his bitter enemies, he was one of the greatest saints on earth for what he achieved. Every Protestant, every person who hates the church, hates the Jesuits, and they all blame Ignatius. The English Jesuits, about the time that Father White was arriving here, they wrote to Rome saying, um, here in England they say we are the horns of the papal bull. Everybody knows Jesus are dishonest and evil and wicked, so even our enemies know that. And so therefore, he did do great things for Christ. But the odd thing is his life is ast astonishing. He had a very bad start, we know that. Long before he'd ever thought of God, uh, he was... Um, he was he has his hair all long and he went out at night committing crimes mainly rows among local Basques 
and then he put himself down as a cleric to dodge the draft. Draft, I think you say, but he dodged it. <laughs> but he forgot to register, and he was up in the courts. All this happened before the Jesuits knew about it and hushed it up. <laughs> then he had many girls, and eventually had a girl who was, as he said himself, was more than a duchess, more than a this. She was, as far as we know, the daughter of the King of France. He was in love with her. Some people say he actually had an illegitimate child, but I don't find that in any spiritual reading book. <laughs> what all I, of course, Ignatius ran himself down when he was holy, and I think he exaggerated, but all I do know is that when he made his confession of Manresa, he took three days, so he didn't just, wasn't just distractions in prayer. Well, he was lying in bed, and he only, he was an old soldier, he had this terrible wound, he was like the poor Pope, with his one leg broken and the other uh, shattered, and he only had them, went through endless surgery at agonies, simply for the sake of not have limping, because it would have ruined his chance with the girls. There was no high motive. But the odd thing is, lying in bed, as you know, he's one of the very few saints who was converted by spiritual reading. He had the two books, he, only two books he had, The Life of Christ and a thing called the Flos Sanctorum, The Flowers of the Sanctity, what we are meditating on. These two books and the Holy Spirit, and suddenly he saw the light. And there's no doubt he went through immense conversion, just like Newman said, but it doesn't last. For about a year he was almost crazy. Lainez, his greatest servant, uh, follower, said, he went through a spiritual infancy when he was 30. Well, he went to this cave, he went to confession, then he let his fingernails grow and he let his beard grow. He turned into one of these chaps that uh, had money boxes in San Francisco, and Buddhists or something. He got very thin and he, then he had ecstasies and he was tempted to suicide. There was a hole in the floor of the cloister, as he tells us himself, and he didn't dare go around that way in case he jumped in. He had to go the long way around, or you'd have found him dead. Well, he did a whole year of this, and then he went out to Palestine, just to, uh, starving, with no money, just to see where our Lord had lived. Then he came back and went to school, and didn't know any language, as a man of 30. He was 49 about when eventually the society was founded. He walked all the way from Spain to Paris, he begged his way. He had no money at all. The only people he had were these dear ladies in Barcelona who had seen him when he was poor. He called on them. They thought he was a tramp. I've got an account of one of them, which I haven't got time to read out to you, uh, where she thought he was a tramp. And then he spoke so nicely, and his hands were so delicate that she said, well, he must have come gone wrong in some way. And then eventually he asked her for money, and she gave him oil and food. And then suddenly she began to realize, and eventually she came to think of him as a saint. She gave testimony when he was canonized. Her great-grandmother had met him when he was begging from door to door. He begged in France, he begged in the Netherlands, he must have been very hard up, he went off and begged in England. <laughs> Wouldn't have gone much there, although Sir Thomas More was Lord Chancellor at the time. Well, eventually, he formed this group, and everyone says, oh, you, he did this to fight Protestants. 
to defend against Luther. He never saw a Protestant. I, one, he missed Calvin by about two months. Calvin left St. Barbara's College in Paris in the summer, and Ignatius arrived in the fall of the same year, so that he never saw them. But the odd thing is, he founded the order to go to Palestine and work where our Lord was. Father and myself and all the Jesuits, we ought to be in Palestine now. Thank God he failed. <laughs> but he didn't have no idea of fighting heretics at all. He wanted to be near our Lord. So then eventually, the strange thing is, he then, because they couldn't get a boat, he then thought of working in Italy, sent some Francis Xavier to the missions, etc. What did he do? If I had all the most learned Jesuits in America in a row and asked them to write down what the heck Ignatius did for his last 10 years or 15 years on earth, they wouldn't know, except they presume he got up in the morning. What did he do? Well, the extraordinary thing, this man who'd seen visions, he started off, the most extraordinary thing, when he died, he had written letters that now cover 9,000 pages in print. He sat in that little room at Manresa at Ro in Rome, very small, you can still see it, writing to all his men in Spain, in France, in Germany, St. Francis Xavier. He wrote 50 letters to women, only 50, and they're here in a book. They're the funniest you ever heard. He wanted to reform the church, and in his lifetime, he built colleges some 600, and he never left Rome, and he limped and he was old. And in order to build these colleges, he made friends with all the people, high-class princesses, poor, everybody. He wrote 50 letters to women, half or two, no, no a third are to princesses and to very high-up princesses who built colleges for him or got around their husbands, which is more important. He wrote another lot to his benefactresses, wonderful ladies who all the time helped him, and he wrote marvelous letters to the mothers of Jesuits. The odd thing is, really, when you read his life, you'd, he could almost qualify for Watergate. <laughs> Only one woman managed to get around him entirely. There's one woman who became a Jesuit. Deadly secret, she never let it out, he never let it out. Years later, they, they now found out he actually cheated, and he changed her name, and in the catalogues, she had a man's name, Mateo Sanchez. She was, in fact, the Infanta Isabella of Spain, uh, Joanna of Spain. She was the sister of Philip II. And she begged to be a Jesuit, and eventually he wanted a, She was so generous to the society, and she so promoted its work, and it wasn't forbidden, that eventually he allowed her to take her vows as a scholastic. And she never told anyone, and he knew, and one or two other Jesuits, and even when she died, I've got a picture of her here. She's frightfully good looking, and yet the strange thing is, she looks a bit like a Jesuit. <laughs> and I've not seen a good looking Jesuit yet. She's a marvelous person, and he, her letters to him are marvelous, only he didn't like it when she wrote after she entered the society saying, I want the following priests put under obedience to me. And she wouldn't allow St. Ignatius to move St. Francis Borgia or Father Arras from her, from Spain. She was ruling Spain. So really, Ignatius was an extraordinary. 
Then he landed a terrible scholastic who was the Infanta of Portugal. This chap jumped college, he climbed over the wall in order to become a Jesuit, and all the Portuguese royal family chased him, and eventually they had to give way, and he entered the society. He was insufferable in the society. Indeed, he used to go out at night, he had a bank of his own, uh, he, he had servants, he had, I think it had, he had to have music in his room, and all sorts of special diets, and eventually they put a guard on the door of the Jesuit church because this scholastic, this student was out. And when he couldn't get in, he had a row and poked the guard in, an eye, in the eye and made it bleed. And Ignatius stood there quite calmly, we're told, say, saying his prayers. It's really, when you read the thing, you wonder how Ignatius ever got on. But the end of it all, when he died, suddenly, what happened? You look back and you say, did any saint do more? We have his prayer, and with that I end. You can say that if you get hold of the spiritual exercises. Every night in his dirty little room, he went up to his room and looked at the stars. That's all he had left of the visions in the cave. And then he said his marvelous prayer, which we have in the exercise book. And I like it because it fits in with our retreat today. It's, the, it's practically what we said for our vows, and it's what this Mateo Sanchez, this woman said when she took her vows, Eternal Lord of all things, I make this offering with thy grace and help in the presence of thine infinite goodness and in the presence of thy glorious mother and of all the saints of thy heavenly court, that it is my wish and desire and my deliberate choice, provided only that it be for your greater service and praise, to imitate you in bearing all injuries all evils and all poverty, both physical and spiritual. If thy most sacred majesty should will to choose me for such a life and state. That was the colloquy he wrote for the two standards when he was in Manresa, and this is the only thing that he did. He must have felt at the end what a failure his life was. Yet his enemies and friends looking back say, no other saint did as much. When he was lying in bed wounded, he made that remarkable statement, what Dominic and Francis did for Christ, I can do. He didn't do more than them, but he did as much. And all those three saints bring out the lesson of Naaman, that if our Lord had asked them to do big things, they'd do it. But our Lord asked him to stay in a city and just hear confessions, write letters, collect money, open colleges, and it never looked big only to us looking back.